We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. I mean, honestly, I'm getting a little disgusted with the whole situation because we feel like we're not making any progress. We're now into maybe 15, 16 months of this manhunt. We're just thinking, man, let's just let him surrender again. Let's just all go home and get back to our lives. But then, you know what, you'd see one of your really good friends that was a Columbia police officer that would that was murdered. You know, he was blown up by a car bomb or he was shot in a raid or there was an operation where eight of our very close friends were going on operation and they had to use boats and the boats tipped over and eight of the police officers drowned. So you would see that and then you'd, it would hit you. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Get back on your mission. Get your focus back. You don't give up. Get in there and do your job. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On this episode, we return to Steve Murphy, the DEA officer sent to Colombia in 1991 to take part in the hunt for Pablo Escobar. This is a two-part story, so if you haven't heard episode one yet, you should start there and come back to us. Escobar headed the Medellin cartel, which dominated the cocaine market in the 80s and early 90s. Murphy is working with Colombian police officers and with his partner, Javier Peña, to track down the so-called king of cocaine. Here's his story. Javier and I worked with a very elite group of Colombian National Police Officers, the DIJIN, D-I-J-I-N unit. These were the plainclothes guys that they would gather their own intelligence, but they would also go act on their own intelligence. So these were the these were the butt kickers, you know. These are the guys, if you're down there doing that job, that's who you want to work with. So we had that, we already had that working relationship and the respect for each other, the trust in each other. So that's that was our primary points of contact. Now, living at the base, the embassy ordered us not to leave the compound. It was for our safety. Well, Javier and I discussed at the very beginning, we can't get our job done if that's what happens here. And plus, if we don't go out and face some of the same dangers that the uh, Dahin guys are, we're going to lose all respect. So we decided from day one, we're going to do, we're going to continue to do our job. So we would go out with the Dahin guys and unmarked cars. We would uh, go out on surveillances, meet informants. Uh, sometimes we would go with them to pay informants because they wanted a gringo there to document that the money was actually paid. There were a lot of accusations of corruption in the police down there, which it really wasn't as bad as everybody thinks. We would go out on the Huey helicopter gunships on raids. We would go out in, in these massive patrols where we they might drop you off in the mountains and you patrol the mountains looking for cocaine labs or hiding spots or whatever 
on a daily basis and they come back and pick you up in the evening. Uh, we were heavily involved. We, the, the U.S. and the Colombian government started a 1-800-TIP line. The United States was willing to offer a $5 million reward for information leading to the capture of Pablo Escobar. Well, when people called in, because of that mistrust of the Colombian National Police and the government in general, they didn't want to talk to a Colombian. They wanted to talk to a gringo. So that would lead to us going out into the public to meet these sources. And that in itself is, is inherently dangerous because we don't know who they are. You know, we had techniques set up. We, we would send out pre-surveillance and, you know, we would go out and make sure it wasn't a setup or somebody was trying to kill us. And we always had protection with us. Initially, those first few months of the manhunt, we were intercepting calls, some telephone calls, but, but understand that back during that time, the telephone system wasn't 3G, 4G, 5G like we all enjoy today. They bas telephones basically operate on radio frequencies. Of course, for, if somebody wants to thwart your efforts to intercept them, all they have to do is change the frequency, right? And there's thousands of frequencies in the radio spectrum. So it's a challenge. But it's also a challenge for them because they have to get the new frequency to the people that they want to talk to. So it's, it's a double-edged sword there when you change that frequency. So the CIA had a program they called Center Spike. Back then, even those words were classified. Center Spike is basically an aircraft that flies over the area that you're targeting with radio intercept equipment. And that's what we were using to try to identify the new frequencies for Pablo Escobar whenever he changes frequencies. That led to identifying other members of Pablo's organization as well. One of the operations led to identifying Gustavo Gaviria's location, which is Pablo's cousin. There's the brains of the Medellin cartel. You know what? We wanted to extradite him. We wanted to bring him back to the United States because if we could get him to flip, we're going to have all the inside information on the entire Medellin cartel. What is it Pablo's planning? Where's your labs? What are your distribution routes? How are you getting the money back? Where are you getting materials? Where are your chemicals coming from? What's the responsibility of the people in your organization? What's your hierarchy chart? You know, what government officials are being paid off? Not only in Colombia, but other countries as well. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it would have been a treasure trove of intelligence for us to really take advantage of. But they surrounded the place where Gustavo was hiding. They asked him to come out. He came out with a machine gun and started shooting at the police. So we had no choice but to, to shoot back and defend ourselves. That's when the organization really started deteriorating. Pablo was starting to lose the brain power that kept him going. As Sicarios are being killed, Pablo, did, he wasn't in a position now to recruit Sicarios like he used to be able to do. So his, his strength is starting to wane. After Escobar escaped and I'm living in Medellin, you know, there were times I might go five weeks and not come home. But my wife, Connie, is still back in Bogota by herself. Americans were not allowed to work outside the embassy because it was so dangerous back during this time. So she's working in the post office. One day she sees a Time magazine come through for one of the American employees, and the cover article is talking about how Colombia is the leading country in the world for adoptions for American families. Connie and I had been trying to adopt children in the United States and were unsuccessful, primarily because we didn't have as much money as, as the agency wanted us to have. I have two sons from a prior marriage that, you know, they are part of our family. 
but they stayed in the United States because at that time you were not allowed to take children to Columbia. It's considered a danger post. So we read through that article, and of course that piqued our interest uh, about potentially adopting again. Connie befriended a lady, and she was in charge of adoptions in the area of Bogota and Cundinamarca, which is the state that Bogota is located in in Colombia. So she called and said, hey, I think I found a little girl for you guys. We went to this lady's office, and she had the file there, and I said, well, can I see a picture? She's like, no, law does not allow me to show you anything in this file. So we talked a little bit longer. She said, listen, I've got to run to a meeting. I'll be back in a few minutes. And she leaves. And, of course, you know, being a good investigator, I went and investigated that file, and we saw a picture of Monica. Uh, she was eight months old. Uh, I got to tell you, I fell in love with that picture immediately. My wife was looking at it like, ah, I don't know. Does she look okay? Does she look normal? And, and all that. But that eventually led to us adopting our daughter. So that was a nice surprise, but it was also neat because no other American in the U.S. Embassy down there, there were hundreds of Americans down there, no other family had a child. And here we've got this beautiful little baby girl. So, you know, she is now the attraction of everybody in the embassy. Uh, we go to parties, we take her, and, and we might not see her for two hours because all the ladies are passing her around and just really making over. So it was, it was a lot of fun. But, you know, I still have my responsibilities in Medellin, so I'm still living up there. Javier's doing his thing, uh, living up there also. And I mean, honestly, I, I'm getting a little disgusted with the whole situation because we feel like we're not making any progress. We're now into maybe 15, 16 months of this manhunt. We're just thinking, man, let's just let him surrender again. Let's just all go home and get back to our lives. But then, you know what, you'd see one of your really good friends that was a Columbia police officer that would it was murdered, you know, he was blown up by a car bomb or he was shot in a raid or there was an operation where eight of our uh, very close friends were going on operation and they had to use boats and the boats tipped over and eight of the police officers drowned. So you would see that and then you'd, it would hit you, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself, get back on your mission, get your focus back, you don't give up, get in there and do your job. Towards the latter part of 1993, the government of France had, had donated several vans to the government of Colombia, and these vans contained radio directional finding equipment. The principle of this equipment, it used a theory called triangulation, which is pretty simple to figure out, you know, and so you'd put three of those, at least three of those vans at different parts in the city, and if you knew the frequency that Pablo was speaking on, those vans could shoot a line, and where the three lines crossed each other, that's where the signal was emanating from. Pablo, at, by this time, by December 1993, didn't have a lot of support anymore. He was calling. He wanted to negotiate a, another surrender. He had already said that if the government doesn't let me surrender, I'm going to declare a war on this country like you've never seen before. We'd already been through two of those wars. It's certainly not something we wanted to experience again. This is a guy that didn't make idle threats. If he said he was going to kill you, you better run or you better get ready for battle because he's coming. So he's calling people, but his organization has been decimated by the Colombian National Police, by the Colombian military. So who would he talk to? You know, who could he call that he trusts the most? Well, we all know he was calling his son Juan Pablo. So Pablo would call to Juan Pablo, he'd give him instructions. Hey, call the editors for the El Espectador, 
El Diario, whatever media he wanted an article put in and tell him, this is what I want to do. I'll send him a letter with my terms. You know, I, I want this public knowledge. Pablo knew that we were listening to his frequencies, or he suspected anyway. Heck, on one of the phone calls, we even heard him refer to the two gringos up in Medellin. We heard him refer to the names Pena and Murphy. <laughs> I got to tell you, that was not a comfortable feeling at all that he knows your name. But he knew not to stay on the phone too long. Well, on December 2nd, 1993, Pablo's talking to his son Juan Pablo, and he's giving him instructions. And he's telling him, you know, you call the president's office and tell him this. You call the media and tell him that. You call the attorney general and give him this message. I mean, even Juan Pablo says, Dad, we've been on the phone too long here. We need to hang up. And Pablo just kept going. Well, a member of the Columbia National Police, Lieutenant Hugo Martinez, had taught himself how to use radio directional finding equipment. Because those vans that the government of France sent over, when they triangulated, it left a rather large margin of error. So to refine that margin of error, you had to send in ground troops. And, and the way you did that is you had a meter in one hand and you had an antenna, a handheld antenna that you would drive down the street. And you had to hold that antenna outside the car. Well, there's something you see every day, isn't it? <laughs> there's nothing obvious about that. And that's what Lieutenant Martinez did. He had a driver. He's in plain clothes. The first time he went down to an area, he thought he had located it. The Dehene unit comes in and conducts the raid. Well, it's an empty warehouse. There's nobody there. Well, Lieutenant Martinez, now they, remember, he's self-taught on how this equipment works. He hasn't had any formal training, but he's a very, very intelligent young man. He goes out and surveys the area, and he realizes there's a body of water. Body of water will affect the way radio waves travel through the atmosphere. So he recalibrated his equipment. Sure enough, he gets another reading showing him that, uh, hey, there's uh, go down this street. In his own words, as he's driving down the street, he said, you know, his equipment's telling him to look to the left. He looks up, and from the second floor of a three-story row house, he sees who he believes is Pablo Escobar talking on the phone. And he says Pablo's looking at him. Now, remember, Lieutenant Martinez has that antenna sticking out the window. Why didn't Pablo react differently when he saw somebody looking at him and he's holding an antenna out the window? The only explanation that we could come up with is that Pablo is so engrossed in his conversation with his son that he doesn't really realize what he's looking at. So the Dehene unit zips over there. Lieutenant Martinez calls in to Colonel Hugo Martinez, which, by the way, is a father-son team. Well, Javier and I had such a good relationship with Colonel Martinez that, you know, we could go over and, and respectfully I'd stand at the door and I'd wait for the colonel to tell me to come in. He's, he motioned, hey, come on in, come on in. And he's on the radio talking to his son. And so I'm listening to this conversation and one of the lieutenant colonels leans over and says, they, they think they've located Pablo in this row house. So Colonel Martinez says, listen, secure the site. Uh, we're loading up the search block. Uh, we'll be there as quick as we can, but do not let him get away. Well, the Dehean guys, there were two majors, and they made the call, we're not taking a chance on losing him. So they sent a couple guys around back on the back side of this row house. The other guys, they make entry through the front using debt cord to blow the door off the hinges. You hear on the conversation that Pablo says, oh, what the heck was that? You hear this muffled explosion. He says, like, there's something going on here. I'll get back to you, and disconnects the call. Now, this is a three-story row house. The Dehean guys make entry to the main floor, which is a, uh, believe it or not, was a garage-kitchen combination. When they got up to the second level, they saw Pablo 
going up the steps to the third floor. When Pablo got up there, of course, the police start yelling at him. One of them orders him to drop his weapons. Pablo starts shooting at this policeman. Well, he trips. The policeman, thank the good Lord, tripped and fell on the steps because the bullet went straight over his head. Otherwise, he would have been killed. Now, Pablo's up there at that third story window. He's ready to jump out. He knows that his sole bodyguard, which by the way, was an extreme surprise for all of us because at one point, Pablo had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting. Now he's got one. Tells you how his organization has been devastated, right? So Pablo jumps down the roof. He tries to make his way across the roof in a mad dash. The police order him to stop. He's got a double shoulder holster rig that he's wearing. He's got two nine millimeter pistols. He's shooting at the cops and they caught him in a crossfire. He's hit three times. He's hit once in the back of the leg. He's hit once in the butt cheek. Both of those are knockdown shots. And the third round is a round that went through his ear. That's the kill shot. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Game Pass. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to Steve Murphy, a DEA agent who took part in the hunt for narco-terrorist Pablo Escobar in Colombia. Back at the base, it got real quiet on the radio, and you talk about suspenseful. I mean, you you could hear a uh, <laughs> you could hear a pin drop in that room because we're all just waiting to hear what's going to happen. Lo and behold, one of the majors comes up on the radio and says, Viva Colombia, Pablo Escobar is dead. That led to a lot of cheering, a lot of backslapping, uh, a great moment of elation. But we still got to get the troops loaded up and get out there because the Zaheen guys are all out there by, south, by themselves. And there's been this major firefight. You don't know, does Pablo have more Sicarios on the way? Did he get a phone call, radio call off for support, for backup that's coming? Well, I run to the room, I grab my, my gear, which is cameras and my weapons. I come running out, and the search block is gone. The only people in the base are the guards on the gates. There's not a single vehicle in the compound. I have no idea where they are in the city of Medellin. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm running through my mind. I could call a taxi, but I don't even know what the location is, where the firefight took place. And, you know, you're just trying to come up with scenarios. And lo and behold, here comes a single Jeep driving back into the compound, and it's Colonel Martinez's Jeep with his bodyguard and his driver. And he comes riding, and he's like, Steak, what are you? Well, my name's Steve, but when the Colombians would say it, it came out as Steak, so my nickname was Stick. He's like, Steak, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was like, Colonel, can I, I need to get out there. Can I go with you? And he's like, get in the Jeep. Let's go. And he had come back to get his movie camera. We finally get out on the site, and... You know, the public is starting to come out. I mean, there's hundreds of people coming out wanting to know what happened. Uh, The Colombian military shows up with a couple hundred personnel. It was just chaos. 
uh, we went inside the, the row house. I got to photograph all the rooms. Turns out my camera was the only camera that worked that took all the photographs down there that day, which is why Javier and I have those photos now. Uh, took pictures of all the individual rooms, uh, got out on the roof eventually, took pictures of Pablo's body, a visual identification that yes, that's Pablo Escobar. So shortly after I'm up on the roof there, where Pablo's body is, I'm, I can see down the ground and a lot of people are milling around. The perimeter really hadn't been established yet, so people were coming and going. And Pablo's mother and sister arrived. And the Columbia police officers told me who she was. She comes up on the roof where we are, and I get off in the background, so I'm not out front where she, I can be seen very well. And when I saw her reaction, when she saw her brother, that was 100% confirmation for me that yes, absolutely, this was Pablo Escobar. So Pablo was killed on December 2nd, 1993. Um, my wife and I were, of course we had Monica, our baby girl. We wanted a second daughter. I was walking through the embassy one day and I really like babies. I, I like little kids. I always have, you know, my dad was like that and, and they liked him. And there were a bunch of American women sitting in the, the waiting room across from the Marine Corps post at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota. And they were all holding babies. So I walked in there. I said, hey, ladies, what's going on? And they had all just adopted these babies from an orphanage up in Medellin. And so I'm talking, and I, you know, hey, we just adopted last year. And, you know, we were just kind of comparing stories. Well, the assistant director for that orphanage was with them. I met her, and I said, you know, my, my wife and I are still interested in adopting the second one. If, if uh, you know, maybe we can talk to your director. Well, long story short, we adopted our second daughter from this orphanage in Medellin. Her given name was Daniela. You know, that's a pretty name. But we'd always wanted a little girl named Mandy. So we, uh, we'd we have to fly up to Medellin twice. Well, I called one of the uh, Colombian police colonels. They loved the fact that we had adopted uh, Monica, a Colombian orphan. And so got whatever I wanted. So, well, we, we land. We flew Avianca into Medellin, my wife and I. You know, she's got on nice dress and heels, and I've got on nice slacks and a sport coat. And there's a Huey helicopter gunship waiting on us. <laughs> My wife looked at that. She's like, there's no way I'm getting on that damn thing. <laughs> so we jump in these three cars, unmarked cars. Um, they're all in plain clothes. They're all carrying long guns and sidearms. And I said, listen, guys, you know, keep the long guns hidden. I don't want to alert people or alarm people, you know, with, with us showing a bunch of weapons. Oh, we got it. We got it, Steak. No problem. The first place we go to... The first, we're in three cars. The first car goes to the end of the street, slides sideways and blocks the street. The third car blocks the street where we've just come in and everybody pulls out their long guns. I mean, we're talking about Galil 7.62 millimeter rifles. We're talking about Uzi machine guns. I'm like, what part of low key do you guys not understand here? You know, of course, then the attorney's looking at me like, what the heck, what's going on here, you know? So we get through it. We make our second trip to Medellin and, and that's when the adoption is final. We're at the orphanage. Uh, the director is there. She's just this wonderful lady, speaks fluent English. She says, uh, you know, this whole process is over now. Mandy is now, her name has been changed to Mandy. All records have been expunged. All the record books show that you are her legal parents. Nobody can take her away from you. She said, can I ask you some questions? <laughs> and I said, well, I mean, you know, you know, pretty much know everything about us already, but I'll, you know, I guess. And she says, who in the heck are you people? 
And I said, well, you know who you are. Why do you ask that? She said, we adopt Americans all the time. We've never seen security like that. You know, they might show up with one, uh, we call them rent-a-cops bodyguard or whatever, you know. And I said, well, uh, I said, you know who I work for? She said, yeah, you're a lawyer with the Department of Justice. I said, well, I'm not a lawyer. I do work for the Department of Justice. But in Spanish, I said, tu sabes que es la DEA? Do you know what DEA is? She gets wide-eyed. She looks back. She kind of leans back chair. She said, I knew it. I knew it had to be something like that. And I said, do we have a problem here? And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. No problems, no problems. And so what she does is she tells us her personal story. Her 17-year-old son was out um, with his buddies in the city of Medellin doing whatever 17-year-olds do, you know. Well, two drug gangs show up in the same area. They get into a gun battle, and her 17-year-old kid is killed by a stray bullet from these narcos gun battle. So once she realized uh, who we were and what our involvement was, she said, do you know who lives in this building up here behind us? And up on the hillside was the Monaco building. The Monaco building is where Pablo's family lived, an eight-story condo building, and they were the only residents, them and the Sicarios and their staff, their maids and all those people. And I said, I absolutely know who lives there. She said, do me a favor when you leave. She said, we're, we're so thankful what you have done. Please relay this message to your partner, Javier. Thank you for what you've done for our country and for the citizens of Colombia. Um, you know, and I mean, even telling that story now. It was a nice way for us to go out of the country, feeling like we'd actually done something good. Steve Murphy spent 26 years in the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. He describes his time in Colombia in the book Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar, co-written by his DEA partner, Javier Pena. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. Our I Spy team includes Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. iSpy at foreignpolicy.com. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing iSpy listeners can get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Next week on iSpy, FBI Special Agent George Pirro is sent to Iraq to interrogate Saddam Hussein. The thing that we first connected on was our love, appreciation, and admiration for our moms. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale.